0: Welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg. And on today's episode, I'm pleased to have Yasmin Mohammed, a Canadian human rights activist, joining us. She's gonna share her personal story of her arranged marriage to a member of Al-Qaeda and the trauma she faced because of it. She'll also shed light on the many challenges women in Islamic majority countries face today and what we can do to advance the basic human rights that all women deserve. But before we dive in, IWF does know that many Americans are facing unprecedented challenges due to COVID-19, and that it's more important than ever to show what America is made of. IWF is highlighting American ideals of ingenuity, generosity, and kindness. From everyday Americans donating blood to companies providing free food and housing, it's a beautiful reminder that we're in this together. Visit IWF.org or check us out on Facebook and Twitter, and follow our campaign using hashtag the this together that is hashtag in this together to learn more. Now to our future guest today, Canadian human rights activist Yasmeen Mohammed joins us. She is an advocate for the rights of women living within Islamic majority countries, as well as those who struggle under religious fundamentalism. She is the founder of Free Hearts, Free Minds, an organization that provides psychological support for free thinkers living within Muslim majority countries, where the state sanctioned punishment for leaving Islam is death. Her book Unveiled is a memoir that recalls her experiences growing up in a fundamentalist Islamic household and her arranged marriage to a member of Al Qaeda. In it, she sheds light on the religious trauma that so many women still today are unable to discuss. Yasmin, it is a pleasure to have you on She Thinks Today. Thank you so much for having me, Beverly. And I just want to first of all commend you for your bravery and speaking out, not just your own story, but speaking on behalf of so many women in the world today. And I thought I would just start off by asking you to share more of your story. I encourage people to get your book Unveiled, that I just mentioned, which is very detailed in your own experience. Um, But can you share with us your own story as far as your mother marrying somebody who was um, part of Al Qaeda and then you being married to somebody who is? part of Al-Qaeda?
1: Yeah, so my mom was married, she actually was taken as a second wife to a man who was a fundamentalist Muslim. He wasn't a terrorist, but he was, a, you know, like many um, Muslims, he was on the sidelines approving of the terrorism, but he himself was not a terrorist. Um, she married him when I was about five or six years old, and that's when my life just changed completely. And all of a sudden, my mom started covering her hair, music, our our records, he broke all of our records, because music was considered forbidden. Um, I was no longer allowed to ride a bicycle, go swimming. I wasn't allowed to have non-Muslim friends. I mean, he just he just hit my life like a bomb. And from that moment on, I lived in a bubble where I was no longer I'm a member of the Canadian society. I was in a bubble separated from everybody else and I called it the bubble of Sharia. I attended Islamic schools where my mom just dove in headfirst. So she just became, you know, a born again Muslim and a born again fundamentalist Muslim. And she started studying at Al-Azhar University, which is a, a renowned Islamic university in Egypt. And she became the head of the Islamic studies department at the Islamic school with, that I attended. And, you know, I was put in hijab at the age of nine, which meant I had to cover everything but my face and hands. And suddenly, you know, my childhood was just completely ripped away from me. I wasn't even allowed to laugh. I wasn't allowed to speak loudly because even my voice was considered something that was um aura, which is the translation for that really is private part. So every aspect of a woman is considered a private part and should be hidden from view of of the public. And that happened to me when I was nine years old. And it continued like that until I was eventually um, forced into the marriage with the terrorist who my mom chose because she felt he was strong enough to control me. So they had you know she i was the kind of person who always asked questions and was always pushing boundaries i mean i say that but it's not like i did anything i you know just the fact that i would ask simple questions like why should we respect and honor a man who at 53 married a 6 year old girl that sounds off to me that sounds scary as a young girl listening to that like this this is this he sounds like a pedophile and for me to ask those kinds of questions meant that you know, i was it was it was just I was this uncontrollable child that that wouldn't get in line, and the devil was trying to coerce me with whispering all of these things in my ear. So she married me off to a man who she thought would be strong enough to finally keep me in line. And to be honest, it worked initially because, you know, he covered me head to toe in black. Um, now, You know, I I had already been covering everything about my face and hands, but now my face and hands were covered, too. I was never allowed to leave the house. He, he, We had curtains on all our windows, but he also covered all of the windows in paper, just in case the wind would blow, you know, the the curtain and anybody could see in between the crack. And it was essentially a prison. And it was... um, well, for the fact that I had a daughter and I felt like I really needed to get out of that world to save her, I don't think I would have found the courage to survive for myself because I was completely depleted. I had nothing left to fight with. But I was contacted by CSIS, who are the Canadian CIA, and they told me who I was married to. And um it made sense, of course, all the connecting all the dots made perfect sense. And I knew that I had to get my daughter away from him and myself away from him before he took us both to Afghanistan, which is where he was with Al Qaeda for ten years before I met him. Um so, you know, through a long convoluted process that's detailed in my book, I was able to get myself and my daughter away and And uh, thankfully she's free today and she has no idea about this world. It's completely foreign to her. And so I feel like I have succeeded in that.
0: And of course you're speaking out for many women who are currently in this situation. I think a lot of people hear your story and say, well, how does this happen in Canada? How does this happen Mm -hmm. in the United States? What do you say to people who think that this is something that only happens in let's say Afghanistan? Afghanistan.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, when the caliphate rose in in Syria and Iraq, we saw people from all over the world burning their passports, German passports, you know, British passports, Canadian, American, and running to join this terrorist organization. So that should have let people know that this is not something that is just happening over there. It's happening in your own backyards all the time. I mean, the Islamic school that I went to was, you know, they, they were not apologetic. They were not they were not hiding. They were incredibly transparent. I mean, not just the one I went to. If you go on YouTube, there's all sorts of videos there all the time where people are recording the kinds of sermons that are happening in mosques, talking about kill the non-believers and um, et cetera, et cetera and those kinds of ideas are being passed on to new generations of kids new generation of muslim kids even though they're living in the western world there's they're they're still being indoctrinated with those ideas and so these ideas don't have borders you can't stop ideas from traveling across borders and when parents you know for example when people leave the, their country of origin and they go somewhere else, they become even more stringent. So let me, let me put it for you. Let me give you an example. I used to teach at a college in the Middle East, and it was there were, everything was there. Texas A&M is there. Virginia Commonwealth is there. All sorts of universities and colleges are there. And the reason why they are being built in the Middle East, as opposed to sending their kids out into the liberal world you know into the uh the western world is because they don't want their kids to pick up these ideas of equality and liberty and so they want their kids to have the western education but they don't want them to pick up those anti-islamic ideas and so when somebody like my mother and that's just one example but this is across the board Leads their Islamic country and they come into what they consider infidel land, you know, surrounded by non believers, they try really, really hard to like suppress and to control all of those ideas of equality and liberalism, and etc, cetera, etc, cetera, from um, tainting their child, they don't want their child to be contaminated. With those ideas so there is a there's a a real concerted effort to to segregate those kids from the rest of the society to always tell them that we are muslims and you know just like that that divisive us and them mentality is so so pervasive you just there's this saying where they say just because you were born in a barn it doesn't mean that you're a horse So just because you're born in the UK, it doesn't mean that you're British. And so even though you're being born and raised here, you're being born and raised to always believe and understand and acknowledge that you are different, you are separate, you are amongst non-believers, you are amongst infidels, and you have to constantly be on guard against them.
0: And I'm assuming that meant for you less interaction with friends and people that you went to school with. You even discussed in your book how there was physical abuse against you and you went to social services, but there is nothing done by social services and law enforcement. So the question I have for you is we are seeing, at least in the United States, some legislation that's been pushed forward in different states to try to act out or to try to prevent things like female genital mutilation taking place. Do you find either in the provinces in Canada or in the states, in the United States, that there is at least good legislation trying to push back on some of this behavior that obviously is extremely damaging, especially to young women?
1: Yes, there are lots of great people that are trying to fight against these things, but unfortunately, they are met with a tsunami of resistance. So first of all, you're going to have the groups of you know, just ignorant, naive do-gooders who don't understand anything and who say things like FGM is a cultural choice or people wear hijab because it's empowering and it's feminist. So they're not understanding the danger of perpetuating or supporting or celebrating these things that really hurt women because they're looking at it from the point of view of cultural relativity, which You know, you kind of alluded to that in my book. I talk about how um, I I spoke about the abuse that was happening in my family, and it, it went all the way to court, and the judge essentially said to me, you know, you happen to, your family is from an Arab background, and so that's just how they choose to discipline you. They choose to hang you up upside down in the garage and whip you. That's their choice. Uh, because that's the culture that they come from. So what I was hearing from that judge was I'm not going to protect you because you happen to have been born in the wrong family. If you've been sitting in front of me here, blonde haired, blue eyed, you know, from a a, a German family or a British family or a French family, then I would protect you. But you happen to be coming from an, an Arabic family. So there's nothing I can do for you. So that that kind of ignorance of wanting to support all cultures ends up supporting these victims to be continually oppressed which is really the the subtitle of my book how western liberals empower radical islam it's really about that 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 ignorance of perpetuating this and of course you know the the fundamentalist muslims are very happy to have the, those group of people speaking out for them Because they also want to continue with these very misogynistic cultural practices, Um, one of them being, like you mentioned, FGM and, and many others. And they use, unfortunately, secular laws against itself. So what they'll do is they'll say things like, this is my religious freedom. And that's actually what happens in a a doctor, the Ion Hirsi Foundation tried to get a doctor in the, um, I think it was Minnesota, and she was charged for performing FGM on all of these little girls for I don't know how many years, like 15 years or something. And she got off and she's free today because they used the religious freedom excuse. And you know that's that's absolutely unacceptable. If your religion says that you should take a razor to a little girl's genitals, then the laws should supersede whatever it is that your religion is teaching. If it is teaching something that is against basic humanity, we need to protect those little girls, whether they have brown skin or white skin, is irrelevant. If a if a if a you know if a blonde hair, blue eyed family took a razor to their little girl, that family would be in prison. So it should be the same when it's a family from Somalia or a family from Egypt. It's irrelevant. That little girl, whether she has white skin or brown skin, is going to feel the same amount of pain and she's going to have the same amount of lifetime psychological and physical damage. It it doesn't matter where her family comes from.
0: And do you have any thoughts or feelings on two Congresswomen who are Muslim American members of Congress, that's Congresswoman Omhar and also Congresswoman Talib. they are within the Muslim community. Any thoughts on how they say that they have a diversity of thoughts and ideas within the Islam Islamic community?
1: No, they do not have, so they have a diversity of, you're getting a, a, a visual diversity here. So yes, you know, the the left loves these women because they look different. They have a different skin color. They have a different name. Ilhan wears a hijab. It, looks, it makes them look diverse and inclusive. But the really sad thing is, is they're supporting these women that are all about divisiveness. They are the opposite of inclusiveness. These are women that have been unapologetically anti-Semitic. They are not the kind of women that you should be celebrating in the democratic party if you really want to have an inclusive diverse dynamic party and you want to include women from different countries and different backgrounds please do that but there are women from palestine me my father is from palestine i'm not american but there are many women and men who are from arab backgrounds from muslim backgrounds that will fight against anti-Semitism, that will fight against these divisive things that Rashida and Elhan support. So we shouldn't be looking to a person's um, background or to their skin color. We should be looking to the person's values, whose values match with our values. If this is a person who doesn't agree with basic American values, then that's not somebody that you should be uplifting in your in your you know in your political party. You should be choosing somebody whose values match the values of your party.
0: And what would you say to a critic who says, well, Yasmin, what happened to you is horrific, but we are talking about years ago that things have improved today, even when you look at Saudi Arabia, they've changed laws there to allow more rights to women there do you think that things have improved on a large scale or is this just in many ways, um, stories that we hear in the news, but nothing that really permeates how women are treated on a day-to-day basis?
1: I mean, that's exactly it. So a lot of these things that you're hearing about are really just window dressing, like the, the driving, for example. So, you know, there, there's so much more context there. The women that fought for the right to drive, for example, those women are rotting in prison today. And the right to drive has been given to women, yes, but under all sorts of stipulations. There's all sorts of, you know, all these little asterisks. And one of them is that, sure, you can get a driver's license if your male guardian approves. Sure, you can get a car if your male guardian approves. Sure, you can leave the house if your male guardian approves. So it's still perpetuating that same system because, unfortunately, this is a, this is a society, this is a mindset, this is, it's, it's a huge hurdle. You can't undo these things overnight. The people themselves have to be wanting to make the changes and have to, you know, when they say we've given women the right to drive, that's just something to get international media excited so that Americans can look at that and think, "Oh, hey, look at that! Saudi Arabia is our ally, and they're 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 making some big changes." But the truth is, on the ground, those changes take a lot more than just changing you know a law slightly. It's going to take changing hearts and minds, and luckily that is happening, and it's happening for two reasons. Number one, ISIS did a big, huge thing. You know, it helped a lot because it allowed a lot of Muslims to see the end game. This is the result. You know, they, Al-Azhar University that I mentioned earlier, when they asked Al-Azhar, is ISIS Islamic? Because, you know, that's the question people always love to say. ISIS has nothing to do with Islam. And so they asked Al-Azhar University, does ISIS have anything to do with Islam? Can you denounce ISIS? And the university's response was, if we denounce ISIS, then that means we are denouncing Islam. ISIS are not doing anything that the Prophet Muhammad didn't do. They are following in the footsteps of, you know, they're they're following what the religion is asking them to do. And so, you know, when Muslims were finally faced with that, you know, it's different when you theoretically talk about, oh, we're going to have a caliphate and kill all the ex-Muslims and, you know, get rid of all the Jews. That's something that they talk about in the mosque all the time, you know, even the rocks and the trees will speak out and they will say, oh, Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me. Like all of these, you know, ridiculous stories about how we're going to the world, we must annihilate all non-Muslims. It's very different when you're just hearing somebody yell about that on a mo- in a mosque on a Friday or reading about it in a, in a Quran versus seeing videos and living in Iraq or living in Syria and seeing how people's lives, seeing how Yazidi women are taken as sex slaves, you know, Yazidi young girls are taken as sex slaves, how Yazidi boys are, are taken from their families and being raised as Muslim soldiers. And, you know, when, when ISIS, when when ISIS fell and they took those boys and gave them back to their families, those boys didn't even know who their families were anymore. They had changed their names, they had changed their identities, they had changed their religion. So, you know, they, Muslims have, are seeing these kinds of things happen and they're realizing, oh my gosh, this is horrible. I want nothing to do with this. This is, this is you know, disgusting. It's the exact same kind of reaction I had when 9-11 happened here so because this is my context on this side of the world, when 9-11 happened, I was absolutely horrified that I belonged to the same group of people that just did that. Like it was, I was so embarrassed. I was so disgusted. I felt like I just wanted to come out of my skin. I just couldn't handle it. And so that's happening to people in the Muslim world now when they see what ISIS are doing. It's making them feel like, oh, my God, how do I identify as the same people as these terrorists and murderers? And so ISIS has helped a lot. And the second thing that has helped a lot for people to see that there are a lot of problems with the religion. And the second thing that has helped is the Internet. So YouTube videos, Twitter, Facebook, all of these campaigns that we're doing all the time. um, Just there's one happening today that started from a girl in Bahrain just talking about how she doesn't want to wear the hijab and she's being forced to wear the hijab and they suspended her account. And so everybody is sort of in solidarity with her. They're sharing their stories and they're saying we have the right to share our stories. And so you, these girls wouldn't be able to say that in real life. You know, they have to open anonymous accounts. They have to be very careful. They have to use VPNs because people online will be, you know, trying to um, to catch them, right? These kinds of things happen. Like, there's, like, if you are gay online in, a, in Saudi Arabia, for example, there have been cases where the police will try to pretend that they are trying to, like, you know, get a date with you, and then they'll arrest you because it's against the law to be gay there, and you could actually um, be executed for it. In a, In 15 Muslim-majority countries, you could be executed for it. So... It's very, very scary for people to speak out, but because of the internet, they're able to do that in a way that they can protect themselves. And then you have, of course, like women in Iran, who will do this out in the streets. They will take a hijab off, tie it to a stick, and then they just sway it in the wind as just like a defiance of having to wear this thing on their head. And those women, of course, uh, you know, they're getting arrested in droves and they are many women in prison today for doing that but the bravery of these people cannot ever be overestimated i mean iran is a country that recently murdered 1500 protesters in its streets just left their bodies in the streets and rivers just strewn around the country for protesting against the government so for these women to stand up and protest for their rights and to demand Their equality and to demand to be treated as equal human beings. I mean, there are no words to express their bravery. I am in absolute unending awe of these women. And I want to do anything I can to support them and to help their voices be heard over here so that when there are people in the Western world that do absolutely ridiculous things like taking the hijab and putting it on Barbie's head or Nike putting their swoosh on a hijab or putting it on the cover of magazines or in advertisements or media all over the place. I want them to recognize that when they do that, they are betraying these women that are risking their lives to fight against this misogyny. They, they don't get how dangerous they're being here in Canada and in New Zealand and all over the world. There's all sorts of female politicians that put hijabs on their head like you are a free woman with power and you are choosing, like instead of using your power to help powerless women, you are choosing to use your power to instead support the oppressors of those powerless women. I mean, it is, it's just beyond understanding. Like they, they, I feel like, you know, if you are a politician, then it is your responsibility to understand what you're doing before you do it instead of doing something so atrocious that I hope that they're doing out of ignorance and not because they actually did want to do that.
0: And this leads me to my final question for you, for those who are listening to this right now and want to know if there's anything they can do to help you are the founder of free hearts and free minds. That's an organization that people can look up, but what can people do if they want to help these women, not just in uh, around the world, but sometimes in their own backyard who are trying to fight against this oppressive culture, oppressive family relationships that put them, put them in these situations. What can people do?
1: So if they are, you know, financially able, it would be great if they could support my organization, freeheartsfreeminds.com. Um, and if they are not able to financially support, then they can still go on Twitter and go on the hashtag #FreeFromHijab, um, which is free from H-I-J-A-B where it's a lot of women sharing their stories, and just to let them know that we're here as their cheerleaders. We see them, we hear them, we feel them, we support them, and we want them to know that they're not alone, and that we support them in their efforts, and that we hope that they will attain their freedom very soon.
0: Well, we thank you so much for all you're doing on this subject and also for sharing your own story. We know that this is probably puts your own life in danger to talk about it, but we know that you're helping so many women in the world. So thank you not only for doing that, but also for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Beverly. I really appreciate it.
0: And thank you for joining. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating, a review on iTunes. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so you can let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening.